Tesla finds itself between a rock and a hacked place, ransomware, to pay or not to pay, as cybersecurity experts Richard Clark and Rob Kinaki discuss the meaning of resilience. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. Sometimes accidents have unexpected consequences. In the case of a recent altercation between a large rock on a Colorado highway and the windshield of a Tesla, this led to the exposure of a security flaw by the bug-hunting owner of the aforementioned car. With details on this rather serendipitous series of events, here's ISMG's Managing Editor, Security and Technology, Jeremy Cook. Sam Curry has a black Tesla Model 3. He's also a web application security tester. Put the two together, and it's virtually assured he was going to try to hack his car. The 19-year-old Curry runs a web application security consultancy called 17 Security near Omaha, Nebraska. He bought his Tesla earlier this year. Curry had been trying to find a flaw within Tesla's web browser, which is a pared-down version of Google's Chromium. He first tried by giving his car a name that was essentially a format string attack. That didn't work, so he changed it to a cross-site scripting payload. Nothing happened, or at least not initially. He took a break and during a month of free time decided to drive across the US. I went on like this like super long, like probably like 70 hours uh, of driving like road trip. And we were driving through Colorado in the United States and uh, like this rock just cracked my windshield. So like I was pretty bummed out and like just did a support request on the app. Opening that support request caused Curry's cross-site scripting payload to fire. On Tesla's end, a support rep had just pulled up the live diagnostics from Curry's car on an internal support dashboard. Curry used the XSS Hunter service for his payload. When it fires, XSS Hunter sends an email notification with the URL of the vulnerable page as well as a screenshot. That screenshot showed the internal Tesla dashboard that had diagnostic information on the state of Curry's vehicle. The URL contained his car's VIN, which potentially could be incremented, an insecure direct object reference flaw. Curry says he didn't take it that far, but he says that it's likely by incrementing the ID sent to the vitals endpoint, an attacker could pull and modify information about other cars. Curry says the dashboard application also has a public version, but what he saw was a screenshot of the internal one. He thinks it may have been possible to pull a cookie and access the public version, which may have allowed him to interact with any vehicle. Support representatives also used the dashboard to push software updates to Tesla's. Tesla triaged the bug and released a hotfix within 12 hours. It paid Curry a $10,000 bounty in about two weeks. I, I honestly do feel like Tesla, this may have been like an honest mistake. I know like one person on their security team and he's like an absolutely fantastic researcher, uh, but, but their security team is absolutely fantastic. And I think like they were almost embarrassed when I reported this because it almost seemed like the issue itself was maybe like something they had fixed in the past and maybe like reintroduced externally because the way they reacted to it was just like, they're like, oh geez. I had another question for Curry though. In his write-up, Curry posted the screenshot of his vehicle's diagnostic information that Tesla had received. His speed at 3.09 p.m. on June 19th was 81 miles per hour, perhaps a bit fast for anywhere in the U.S. And then it says uh, speed 81 miles per hour. Do, do you know where, where you were driving at that particular instance? Oh, you know, somewhere where the speed limit's 81 miles per hour. <laughs> That's funny. Would you have been in Colorado then at that time? I think uh, maybe a little bit afterwards. One of those one of those big highways where they have uh, 
as on the Autobahn. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Ransomware. To pay or not to pay, that is the question. And if you're an individual, an organization, or even a municipality that's been hit with an attack, there is no easy answer. For more on this topic, here's ISMG's Executive Editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz. Ransomware remains incredibly lucrative for criminals. Indeed, when ransomware victims choose to pay, the average ransom they pay if they've been hit by Ryuk ransomware is more than $265,000. According to ransomware incident response firm Coveware, Dharma victims pay much less, about $14,000 on average. And victims of an up-and-coming type of ransomware as a service called Sodenokibi, also known as Revel and Soden, remit nearly $57,000 on average when they pay. But should they pay? Since late 2013, when crypto-locking ransomware first appeared, security experts and law enforcement agencies have been warning victims to never pay. Instead, they argue that money would have been much better spent investing in more robust IT to help organizations not only block malware, but more quickly respond to any disaster. Meanwhile, projects such as the No More Ransom portal have been funneling free decryptors to victims. But not all ransomware has yet been cracked. Now, technically speaking, the FBI and Britain's National Crime Agency say there's no law against paying. Doing so, however, does directly fund crime. Arguably, it emboldens criminals to keep extorting not only new victims, but sometimes previous ones as well. Without a doubt, ransomware has been notching up new victims, including what seems like an unending spate of U.S. cities that keep getting hit, with many choosing to pay a ransom. Some, however, don't. Take Atlanta. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms says she's been working to educate other cities about the threat following her city getting hit by a ransomware attack in 2018. The city of Atlanta has nearly 9,000 employees, and it goes without saying that many rely on technology to do their jobs and to keep the city running. We were incapacitated. Mayor Bottoms was appearing before the House Committee on Cybersecurity in Washington. She told legislators how city investigators quickly discovered that systems had been crypto-locked by extortionists. But doing the principled thing carried a cost. The cost of recovery to date has been approximately $7.2 million, and that number is still climbing. Kudos to Atlanta for carrying cyber insurance and also for choosing not to pay. Subsequently, in November 2018, the Department of Justice indicted two Iranians for running the SamSam ransomware campaign that hit Atlanta and many others. Even when ransomware victims do choose to pay, however, it's no panacea. Indeed, ransomware victims who pay often find their challenges are just beginning. First, they're trusting their attacker to furnish them with working decryption software. Even when they do receive it, decryptors for many strains of ransomware are built to restore files, but not file hierarchies, which can require time-consuming manual efforts to rebuild. And not all decryptors are 100% effective at restoring files, meaning some files still get lost. Ryuk, for example, has a relatively low data recovery rate, only restoring about 87% of files, according to Coveware. Even when decryptors work, they can be slow. 
In June, for example, the city of Lake City, Florida, got hit by a ransomware attack that crypto-locked about 16 terabytes of data, with attackers demanding a ransom. Joseph Helfenberger, the city manager, told the New York Times that the city's insurer negotiated a settlement of 42 bitcoins, worth about $460,000, with the attackers, with the city paying a $10,000 deductible. Once the ransom was paid, the city received a working decryptor, but weeks later, the city had yet to restore even a fraction of the encrypted data because the process was so slow. Security experts say one big lesson to learn here is that organizations must prepare. They must test and they must also continue to refine their disaster recovery practices. Organizations that are well prepared need never even have to consider paying a ransom. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Finally, this week, the latest book combining the collective knowledge of Richard Clark and Robert Kinaki was published. It's titled The Fifth Domain, Defending Our Country, Our Companies and Ourselves in the Age of Cyber Threats. These gentlemen know a thing or two about cybersecurity. Clark was counterterrorism coordinator for the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations, and Kanaki was director of cybersecurity policy for the National Security Council under the Obama administration. I was lucky to have the opportunity to review the book and to interview both of them this week. One key takeaway from the book, for me, was that the best strategies can be summed up by a single word, which in this case is resilience. I asked Richard and Rob what resilience means in the context of cybersecurity and how we get to that. Here's Rob. I mean, I, I think when we looked at this topic, we looked at essentially 20 years of cyber policy that was really kicked off uh, by Dick writing PDD 63 in 1998. And we said, okay, we've largely had the same strategy since then. It's been modified, it's been built on, but you can go from Clinton to Bush to Obama and now to Trump and see essentially the same strategy, which is making the private sector responsible for its own security. And this is a really kind of novel way to handle a national security problem, but it's the only one that fits a world in which all these systems are connected to a global and open internet. And so when we looked at that strategy, we said it's the right concept, it hasn't been sold in the right way. And we really settled on the idea of resilience after looking across all these strategies and talking to a lot of people in the field and recognizing that the idea of resilience, the idea that you need to prepare for disruptions, that you need to be able to recover from them and you need to learn from them and adapt from them and build societal mechanisms around them is really what we're talking about. And we contrast that, I would say, with the idea of offense being the answer, of cyber deterrence being the answer, of these other sort of Cold War strategies that put government front and center, when in the case of cyber warfare, it's really the private sector that is on the front lines. Richard, any final comments from you? Well, I think the technology right now uh, does give the uh, defense a possibility of defending, but technology is constantly changing. Uh, and so we have chapters in the book on AI and machine learning. We have a chapter on quantum computing, and we have a chapter on 5G and the Internet of Things, because you're never standing still in cyberspace. And the introduction of new technologies uh, is constant, and it means that there are new attack services, new ways to attack, because we never 
build defenses into new technologies. We just rush them to market. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.